Hello and welcome to Navara FM. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny. What we've come to know as the culture wars have generated a lot of heat and very little light around the questions of how culture is made, who makes it, how we interact with it, and how history is interpreted and consecrated through the art and culture we produce. The legacy press has been busy churning out column after swivel-eyed column to complain that talking about the class, race or gender context of a work of art is at best naive and unsophisticated, and at worst a censorious act of desecration. All in all, it's probably fair to say that there's a lot of anxiety surrounding questions about the relationship between the hallowed realms of capital G great art and systems of power. Joining me today to delve right into the fray is the author Natalie Ola, whose latest book, Class, has recently been published in the Look Again series by the Tate. By taking us on an alternative journey through Turner and Gainsborough via Jacob Epstein and the young British artists, it invites us to re-examine the connections between art and social class. Natalie, hello and welcome. Hello. So... In your book, you introduce it by talking about the way in which bringing a class-based analysis to art that's often shrouded in a mystique, this sort of air of vauntedness, can be seen as dragging it down into the mortal realm. Could you explain that sort of terrain that you're entering into a little bit? Yes, I think I was keen to ensure that the book wasn't dour or dull and I wanted to ensure that it excited people rather than sort of lecturing them or making it seem as though we had to kind of strip art of all that makes it sort of compelling and interesting to people. We all have our own personal relationship to works of art and that's what brings us to it and I think that art does have a very powerful role to play in society and I wouldn't want to be doing anything that would (laughs) sort of impede that for people or make it more difficult for them to relate to art. So I wanted to make sure that in this analysis what I was doing was opening up people's perceptions, making them wider, making them richer, making them bigger and more interesting and ensuring that I wasn't kind of lecturing or being too didactic with people about how they ought to be approaching art and so that's that was for me a big challenge in writing the book when I was commissioned to do it and actually the further I got into writing it the more naturally that came and I realized and as I've always known but it really kind of brought it home to me in writing this book that this is just a very exciting area of analysis and study it differs very slightly to kind of traditional Marxist critique of literature and art it's a little bit more all-encompassing. It's a little bit more sort of varied in its in its viewpoint and its scope. And I think that it is something that has been lacking in a lot of contemporary analysis and commentary on art and the art world. And so, yes, I suppose it's kind of introducing this kind of class gaze in a way, or, or introducing the idea that a class gaze exists in art, which I think is very interesting and hope other people do as well. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you mean when you say class gaze and how that might differ from traditional materialist type Marxist viewpoint on these things? Yes. So when I was approached to do this, and it's okay for me to say this, I don't think the team at Tate who commissioned the book or the curatorial team would mind me saying this, but I think when they commissioned this book, they had an expectation that I would write specifically about social realism, which is the art of the kind of like late 19th and early 20th century that focuses specifically on working conditions. It'll often be based in and around workhouses or factories, or at the other end of the scale, there's sort of kitchen sink depictions of domestic working class life. And I think there was an expectation that in commissioning a book on class, that is something that I would focus on. And of course, any kind of Marxist analysis will know that that in itself can actually actually serve to just reinforce stereotypes, but also kind of normalise certain aspects of the class experience. And obviously, reading of the National Collection would also require us to look at depictions of the upper class, but also to look at art as a commodity and how it functions in a market. So I kind of wanted to introduce those ideas to the audience, which I guess does constitute a kind of traditional Marxist analysis. But on top of it as well, I wanted to also, you know, demonstrate that these things are inextricable from questions of, as 
well, it also relates to other titles in the series, but things like race and and empire and colonialism, also aspects of sexuality um, and gender, and saying that all of these things sort of are interrelated and can shape our perception of almost any work of art. And no work of art exists outside of these forces and this phenomena. And to understand that and to appreciate that is something that we can all be more aware of, I think. So I think it's it's just kind of wresting it from that very like traditional, quite narrow view of like a Marxist reading of a, of a given work and say, saying to people that actually all of us have some basic understanding of these concepts and these ideas and we can all apply them to the way that we're looking at different things. So I guess it's just kind of loosening it up a little bit and making it a little less kind of enshrined in certain kind of academic traditions and just, yeah, popularising it, I suppose. When you talk about the transformative effect that bringing this class gaze or this class-informed analysis to things that we might not initially think of as like class-informed works, what strikes me most kind of powerfully about that is when you talk about the landscape and the relationship between what we might think of as a completely neutral, even like classically bland, I guess, depiction of like the rolling fields of England, etc, etc. The relationship between that and the land and the landlords and what is actually going on, the political and historical processes that are actually being depicted just behind the surface of the painting, just kind of outside of its view. Yes, that to me was very interesting. And that demonstrates the point, I think, really vividly, that if you look at the landscape paintings of the late 18th and early 19th centuries, not that I was an expert by any means on this subject (laughs) or this (laughs) era in British art history, I had to learn very quickly on the job, but... um, I mean, there's probably many more strains, but to me, it seemed very obvious that there were these two kind of clear strains. There was this sort of far more popular and pervasive type of landscape painting that you got at that time that was almost like technicolour and so like crystalline and perfect. It looked almost like it was CGI'd. It was all in like pastel bright colours. All of the workers are really jubilant and happy. They're having a wonderful time. The hay is really compliant and easily kind of mouldable into and bales. It just all, it looks like a great party. And obviously these paintings were commissioned by very wealthy landowners or their friends. They were definitely from that kind of, they were commissioned by that kind of social milieu. And then at the other end, you had people like Turner, whose paintings are, are oppressive at times. Like quite haunting, uh, dark colours, kind of sickly, I talk about this kind of like sickly yellow light in a lot of Turner paintings. And that demonstrates that you can, pl- you can apply this kind of reading to either painting and find a deeper meaning in them. And obviously they're acting in dialogue with one another. One is suggesting that actually the agricultural developments that were taking place at the late in the late 18th and early 19th centuries were great. It was, it, it heralded this like sense of progress and things improving And then there was this kind of counter narrative that was being generated through these paintings as well that said, well, actually, you know, there's a huge amount of human suffering that's happening as a result of this. We kind of question the progress. So obviously people that know a lot about the Enclosure Acts and the the difference with subsistence farming that had existed before that will understand what that's all about. It might be a little bit too um, (laughs) in-depth to go into here. But yeah, so it was just it was just saying that things that you might dismiss you know, offhand in the gallery as being quite boring, quite dull. All of them will have some kind of class-based textual analysis that can be applied to them that's fascinating, or at least to me. (laughs) I'm intrigued by the way you bring in the work of French philosopher Roland Barthes and his theories of naturalisation and how these images we for want of a better word, consume, can help us, I guess, forget uh, the historical contingency and the the way in which we live and the processes that produce them. And when we talk about landscape, it's often twinned with this idea of like nature and the natural, which Victorians were, you know, love to get hot and bothered about. And it's sort of contrasted <laughs> to this idea of like the city is like this depraved sink of like working class lawlessness but look at the nice pretty nature that is kind of just has happy peasants on it etc <laughs> I think Bart was the writer and thinker that put me onto all of this stuff you know the, in the you know when I first started reading really and it's never gone away and 
I think that that, that collection of essays, mythologies, are very useful in that they they're applied thinking. They're applied thinking to pop cultural phenomenon that m- most people at the time they were written would be aware of, and they demonstrate how kind of pervasive this sort of I don't want to use the Mark Fisher phrase capitalist realism just because it. it's so overused, but <laughs> but it, 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 it serves a purpose and it does it. Does. <laughs> um but just how pervasive these things are and how they can be read into almost anything that we can kind of consume on a daily basis uh, via our tv screens or you know from the supermarket or whatever it's kind of uh, ubiquitous and it is it is the reality that we live in and so it was kind of trying to do that to some of these paintings and also trying to therefore give them like a second life because I get frustrated, actually, if I can talk quite candidly with like the curation of a lot of shows in trying to make them sort of like relatable. And I always find that the attempts to do that are very sort of surface and superficial. And so they'll try to connect it to some kind of like modern phenomena. It's almost like, I mean, sometimes like exhibitions remind me of like the sermons that were delivered at our church by like the cool vicar who would like try to connect (laughs) it to like you know what was happening in like the football or in like celebrity culture or something like that it's like it's not going to wash because it's it's not an authentic comparison the two things don't map onto each other onto each other very well and we you know we know that and we can sense that we can feel that so so many exhibitions that you go to you know they say that so and so was the I don't I don't want to I don't know I can't think but like the They'll say like it's the NFT of its day or something. But what, but what I thought is that there are actually like really compelling parallels to be made between that, you know, what was being done then and what's what we're living through now. But they require us quite crucially to actually look behind the surface of things. And that's that's always been like quite a quite a big thing for me is the idea that to get to the reality of, of what we're living through, or whatever, there has to be an effort to look beyond the surface of things, I suppose. And so uh, this book was an exercise in doing that as well. Can you unravel those those parallels a little bit for me? Yeah, I suppose I was thinking about, for example, we talk, you know, the one parallel that I draw um, that I thought was very powerful and very interesting because it's only a parallel that can be drawn very recently in light of a very recent scholarship. Um, but it has to do with the Turner painting of, it's sort of like a dead body, a kind of a thrown over a horse. And there was lots of speculation. I'm, I'm not giving it a title because it actually doesn't, its title has changed many times in recent years. And there was much speculation about what this painting was about. It was painted around the time that his father died. So there was speculation that it was about that, that it was a kind of expression of depression, all of which felt slightly unsatisfactory. Turner isn't a sort of memoirist. He doesn't tend to write about personal emotional experiences. Sorry, not write about, paint about personal emotional experiences. Um, So that felt quite unsatisfactory. He does resort to folklore and kind of like religious iconography. And there was nothing in that that felt like it mapped perfectly to his painting. And then a scholar recently established that he had been very fond of the Shelley poem, The Mask of Anarchy, which we all now know famously because Jeremy Corbyn used it in his campaign uh, because it contains the lines, uh, ye are many, they are few. And that Turner had been really interested in this poem at that time and so they think that the the poem sorry the painting was a response to that poem and it shows anarchy and it shows the sort of ill-fated protest that took place at Peterloo and it's about the sort of the eternal plight of people who are protesting for equality and just looking at that because it is so abstract and because it doesn't explicitly make reference to Peterloo so it could be about pretty much any kind of struggle political struggle I couldn't help but make connections between the scenes that were photographed during the Black Lives Matter protests when the, the horses were used to charge at protesters. So, that, you know, there's parallels like that that were being drawn out. And I was like, that to me feels like a, a meaningful and authentic kind of comparison between the conditions that people were living through then and the conditions that people are still having to face now. And actually, there's something very poignant in the fact that these scenes are still being recreated 200 years later and we're still having to do this stuff. In fact, there's arguably a greater cause for these protests now than there has been in even recent history. So that to me felt like a a meaningful comparison to make as opposed to a sort of facile, superficial kind of let's try and shoehorn this artwork into kind of like a contemporary narrative or discussion. 
Right. And in a media landscape, which is in many ways very successful in producing a very specific series of emotions when a lot of people will see, say, a Black Lives Matter protester or, you know, a union member on strike and these kinds of things. The parallels between the sort of psychic and media weaponry used to tar movements like this as just an expression of some, like, working class or otherwise othered or racialized brutishness and lawlessness by connecting it with the ways in which those kinds of tools were leveraged in the past can be like quite useful in, I guess, helping us produce and broker different emotions that people might, you know, be able to apply politically, etc. I guess people are more forgiving on the rioters of the past than those of the present, which, you know, let's <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn get away with it. Yes, I think that was very important for me as well. I wanted to make sure that we were establishing like a lineage and a history in something that is great and not just great, but that has been canonized and recorded in this way. And that actually it kind of, it puts those people on the right side of history. And by the same token, it claims people like Turner, national treasure, Turner, you know, the greatest painter that Britain has ever produced that the kind of jingoists are very keen to like claim for themselves. It's claiming, it's wresting him from that kind of um, stereotyping and claiming him for ourselves. And I think it's important to do that. And it's important to keep reiterating that the people that are canonised, the people that we are told to study at university or whatever, you know, that are put on reading lists, et cetera, were all of our persuasion <laughs> <laughs> or largely of our persuasion. Um, yeah. I'd love to talk a bit more about that sort of production of the idea of British greatness through this like cultural tub thumping, particularly <laughs> in in light of the fact that there is the shadow of empire throughout a lot of the paintings that you discuss in this book. And, you know, it brings to mind like Turner's other kind of very famously political painting that's supposed to uh, be in response to the Zong massacre where hundreds of enslaved African people lost their lives because they were thrown overboard. And obviously that was a very controversial thing to paint about at the time, but has since been kind of, I guess, absorbed into a narrative of the Britain that abolished the slave trade versus the Britain that was happily part of the slave trade for hundreds of years and continues to profit off colonialism. Yes, and those kind of works are largely framed not as excoriating criticisms of, the, of these things, but almost like this marked the point at which we, re we realised what we were doing was wrong, you know, or this was the point of change. They're never kind of presented as the kind of polemical pieces that they were and that you know filled with rage and anger and fury they're always kind of claimed by a narrative of progress which is that well obviously we reached a point of realizing that you know slavery was very naughty and bad and wrong then and, and this painting helped us <laughs> to reach that you know realize and so it's always kind of claimed in in that way and those are the kind of narratives that are spun by our big art institutions and academic institutions as well so i think it's important to stress that. Um, Turner is a tricky character because these were his personally held political beliefs. He was from a lower middle class background. I would definitely recommend the Timothy Spall film if you um, haven't seen it. I think it's very good. That's not what I based on this on. I did do a lot of reading <laughs> and it did work very closely with the curators. But um, but it, it does give a good overview of his life. But he was a, a lower middle class, kind of upper working class, such a definition exists person who through a lot of like personal misfortune ended up you know facing quite a lot of hardship hardship and difficulty and so he had a lot of sympathy for and solidarity with working class people that said the only sort of route to achieve recognition as an artist at that time did require you to secure patrons and to secure the approval of the academies which were overseen by members of the royal family, etc. So there was a degree of lip service that needed to be paid. And there are some paintings that he produced as a jobbing artist, as we all have to do to earn money, you know, from time to time that aren't necessarily aligned with his politics and are quite patriotic, I suppose. So he, he's a very interesting figure, I think, Turner. And in the process of writing this, I came to be, you know, very interested. Um, so on the question of British greatness, I don't 
no, but I have a huge amount to say on that front because I wasn't writing about, I was very keen. There were three other titles in the series that have so far been published. Bernadine Evaristo wrote a book on feminism. Afua Hirsch wrote a book on empire and Travis Alabanza wrote a book on gender. And I was very keen to not tread on their toes and ensure that my book acknowledged the kind of interconnectedness between these issues but also didn't look at the same kind of artworks that they were looking at and sort of teased out the unique characteristics of the British class system as it applies to the collection of art so I think Afua's book will probably be more informative on the question of like Britain in the world British greatness this idea of like a British identity but yes I'm curious about the paintings that you look at that do portray single portraits of working class women's work, which is often some combination of romanticised and sexualised. It seems to be such a common trope. Like, why is everyone and their mum painting, like, busty housemaids? Like, what's going on there? <laughs> um, that is that is what they were doing. Um, I mean, I find those portrait those portraits are so funny and I think if you're coming to this without a kind of art history background and you're looking for some really obvious examples of what I'm talking about here in terms of this class gaze then you can really find it in those portraits I think those portraits are so vivid in terms of kind of laying bare these dynamics and when I was in the gallery and I was looking at them often they were paired alongside portraiture of aristocratic figures and aristocratic women and the contrast between them was really staggering to me uh, looking at them in this way in that lots of noble portraiture involves people looking very like dead on at this at the sitter looking dead on at the artist so they're staring out at you from the frame it's very bold it's very direct it's very unapologetic they are shown in kind of all their regalia which is depicted in like high high detail and there'll be lots of kind of like symbolic objects signifying their wealth, importance, uh, status, etc. So the paintings of working class women, by contrast, were almost always showing the sitter looking down. So never directly at or like out of the frame. They're always looking down. So they're always kind of deflecting your gaze. They are far more sort of like gauzy, um, almost as if they've had like a filter put on them. Um, and they look in that way <laughs> yes, a bit like those kind of photos that women got <laughs> they look yassified yeah exactly or also like um like Barbara Cartland photos from like the 80s where she's kind of like in this misty haze with like a kind of cloudy backdrop behind her there's that kind of thing and as you say they've always got the boobs out and they're always thrilled always thrilled to be ironing thrilled to be darning socks whatever it might be and it indicates that like these people are given no sort of um there's no kind of like sovereignty to that form or or to the person that it depicts they are seen wholly as the like possession of the viewer and the painter they are sexualized forms that you're basically encouraged to kind of ogle and fantasize about um, because they don't exist as people they exist as objects and so, yeah, I found those portraits, some of the most kind of like vivid renderings of this phenomenon of any anything that I could find in Tate Britain. That and also there were paintings of sort of like young philanthropists that were also very funny. There's a painting by Sir William Beachy of Sir Francis Ford's children giving a coin to a beggar. And Sir Francis Ford was a plantation owner, big, big plantation owner and his kids were obviously very wealthy as a result. And there's this painting of them handing a coin to uh, what looks like a homeless boy. And it recalls the scene of like the Good Samaritan. And the children look very angelic. They look like the cherubs in like a Renaissance painting. And the boy who they're giving the coin to is like washed out, looks almost like a ghost, kind of like fades into the background of the painting, barely exists, doesn't really exist as a person. And the painting is about their act of generosity. And I like that painting because obviously it sort of recalls or <laughs> or uh, sort of predicts much later kind of like celebrity charity drives that you get in developing countries or in like urban centres up around, you know, up and down the country. And it, it shows how like these displays are all about kind of absolving that person of their place in what is quite a degrade, you know, what is a degrading class system. And 
trying to make them look good, but in the process completely denigrates and dehumanizes the subject or the person receiving the supposedly generous offer or gesture. So yeah, those paintings to me were among some of the most vivid and therefore funniest really in terms of applying this analysis. Sorry, I'm just... <laughs> myself, I've made myself laugh because <laughs> the phrase, the yassification of the working class is just screaming at me. Um... <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> okay. Woof. Um, yeah, no, they are just so ridiculous once you realise. So what I have to now forever think of as the assification of the working class, the more I kind of examine it through this framework that you, <laughs> sorry, apologies, everyone, uh, that this framework that you you put forward is like how kind of sinister they are when you sit with them a bit because like they only kind of are coherent by the amount of violence that they exclude. And I'm using the phrase that I think is in the painting title, the like beggar boy would have been like criminalized yeah. and, you know, subject yeah. to incredible violence, probably by virtue of being on the land and near enough those kids to receive their generosity. And the way in which like the bodies of these women romanticized, sexualized, um, like working class, particularly domestic laborers are so stripped of I guess the toll that that work would have taken because, you know, domestic work was such a huge industry and continues to be very, very labor intensive, not to mention the huge amounts of sexual violence that would have been occurring. So, you know, the fact that they maybe have their boobs out is incredibly horrifying if you think about it through this, through this lens. Yeah. Completely. And actually, when I, I mean, I wrote those things, finding them very funny because I, you know, they, I am distanced from them. These are women that existed 200 years ago who are actually in almost all cases, like quite aristocratic people who are sitting for the portrait. So they, they're not actual women in the middle of completing these tasks. They, they got wealthier women to sit in these poses and dress them up in kind of like cosplay. It was cosplay. And apparently it wasn't just confined to like portraiture. It, this went on at like balls and dances as well. It would be like a, you know, it was like fancy dress to dress as like your staff. Oh my um, God. At these <laughs> parties and balls. So, I, but I was finding it obviously, you know, because it is just so absurd. I was finding it quite funny when I was writing it. But then when other people have read that section of the book back, they said it's like really haunting and it is haunting. I mean, it is, it's like, and it also makes you as the viewer feel complicit in it because, you know, they're, they're designed to titillate these pictures. They're designed mm. to arouse and to kind of, you know, excite people. And so you looking at them and even noticing the fact, I mean, the book has on its front, I mean, it's a woman ironing, but almost everyone has picked up on the fact that I've got like, you know, a woman's cleavage, like on the cover of the book. And I think in a way, I mean, I like that. And I think that it needed to be there because it is just bringing home a point that like, she's completely stripped of any humanity or any kind of sovereignty over her own body and um, what she's doing. So yes, I agree with you. I tend to agree with you that it is haunting. I think for, for me, I guess the twin or the echo of those kinds of portraits are the kind of portraits that the artist Hogarth was painting in the sort of mid 18th century of Stuart to Victorian London, which was seeing this massive explosion in the urban population as sort of capitalism really kicks into gear. And he has a lot of paintings of Gin Street and uh, uh, Beer Lane, there we go, uh, depicting these kinds of like raucous, almost kind of seventh circle of hell paintings of what is supposedly the sinfulness of like working class urban life. Yeah, he really lets himself down in those paintings, I think, because actually the the portraits of the like aristocracy are great. I mean, they're so damning. And he, I guess he, he was satirising absolutely everybody. He wasn't kind of on one side. He's, he, you know, he just kind of lampooned everything and made it almost like a, you know, joke of everything. So the stuff, of, you know, the, the depictions of the aristocracy are very interesting and very funny. And they do go quite a long way to completely 
um, stripping them of any dignity or any respect. But those, I mean, those two, they're kind of like a prototype for those like booze Britain shows that used to be on in, you know, there used to be shows about like people drinking on the streets and how awful it is. And look at this girl falling out of a nightclub. and. The the sort of BBC Three like Blair era yes. Benefit Street look at these drunken teenagers Hogarth sits bizarrely within that because it's it's framed as you know partly satire but partly you know like look at the crap conditions that people are forced to live in and like that's why they're drinking if you want to be generous but it yeah it feels like a bit of a Rorschach test in some ways yeah. And I, I want to think that that's what he was trying to do, was that he was trying to expose the kind of awful living conditions that people had been um, placed in. But I, I I don't know. I mean, the fact that it's been used in the way that it has as a kind of like archetype, of, you know, a kind of depiction of working class ruin or whatever, I think suggests it didn't really succeed in that way. But um, I did actually have a chapter on that, but um, it got edited out just for concision, unfortunately. Oh, the director's cut. I'd love to talk about the relationship between art and philanthropy a bit as so helpfully embodied by the children of Sir Francis Ford in uh, the painting, because, of course, that is how the art world has been used quite successfully, one could argue, by really some of the worst people in history. Obviously, Edward Colston springs to mind of being a mass murderer whose statue was tipped into Bristol Harbour. Well done, guys. Fame. Yes, and that is one of the um, very famous and most obvious examples, particularly at the moment, given that the um, the four people who toppled the statue have just been cleared, thankfully. But it goes on all the time, and there are lots of interesting cases of more contemporary philanthropists who use their kind of involvement in the art world as a cover for some very unethical practices in their kind of financial and business lives. There's the Sackler family who fund, who are accused of sort of funding the opiate crisis in America. Their family wealth is based on pharmaceuticals um, and they have been producing drugs such as I think Oxycontin in America, which has wrecked so many lives in America through addiction um, and overdoses. So they are some of the biggest patrons of the art. They funded uh, libraries at Oxford University that specifically cater to history of art. They funded galleries in London in different ways. I, I don't know which ones specifically. They've also donated to galleries all over the world. And the artist Nan Golden, photographer primarily, has been on a, a campaign. A lot of her friends have lost their lives or been affected by the opiate crisis in America. And she has been on a campaign to expose the Sackler family's involvement in that. And they have just been pulled from a lot of galleries. There was a news story the other day about several galleries taking their names off um, wings that they funded or just in their list of patrons, etc. So that's one example. And I worked as a journalist for years in the arts. That's how I you know, developed my understanding of the art world and constantly being invited by wealthy business people, oligarchs, etc., for whom art serves as a way of um it's like tax avoidance so you you want your money tied up in assets as opposed to just kind of sitting in a bank and it allows you to therefore avoid paying tax on certain portions of your wealth and also just from a kind of pr perspective it just looks like a very benign thing art it looks like a kind of harmless benign slash positive thing to be investing your money in and to be encouraging a few people would argue with artistic expression being you know a good thing for the people involved in it you know it's an enjoyable thing to produce and to consume etc so from a PR perspective it's also it provides the perfect foil because it looks clean above board positive happy great but actually it serves all of these roles um, economically that are a little bit seedy when you were just talking there, I was just reminded of the film, I think it's called OG. It's by Madeleine Sackler, who's one of the scions of the Sackler fortune. And she's a filmmaker, documentarian, and has particularly been making uh, films and documentaries about prisons. And I don't know how to make, <laughs> how to make, uh, how to sit with it in any kind of piece. And that's probably because I shouldn't, because there is no way of disentangling the way in which the Sackler family has acquired their just vast eyed bobbling amounts of wealth with you know, opioid epidemic and the war on drugs, which is why a lot of the people who she's being, you know, 
in her films, very sort of forthright and empathetic towards, you know, why they are in the situation that they are. It's like, how do we kind of, how are we supposed to make sense of, the, of those relationships? Like, there's a sense of contamination there, or like, how are we supposed to um, approach this? Like, what are the right lenses? Yes, I think that, I mean, it is a very, it's, a, it's an important question. And it is one that you have to seriously grapple with if you are going to write about art and you are, you know, you have left-wing politics. And it, if you're interested in art and you have left-wing politics, it, it's quite fraught and you have to kind of negotiate it quite carefully. And I think you have to think quite carefully about what your views are and what your beliefs are because oftentimes art can be used, I think, as a sort of decoy for those in power. So if you allow for artistic freedom, it kind of gives the impression of like plurality. So it suggests that, well, you know, we've got a we've got a kind of like free and uninhibited kind of art scene in our country, then it doesn't matter if we are, for example, shutting down left-wing ideas in universities or we're undercutting um, humanities courses in universities, et cetera, et cetera, because we can create, we've kind of created this perfect foil for ourselves that says, well, look, we're a free, liberal, progressive, forward-thinking country that has a kind of thriving art scene. And as an artist, if you're part of that, I think you have to also be aware of your use in propaganda as well and how you know you're being used to create this impression of a free and open society and I think you also have to be very very vigilant to you know the funding streams um, the organizations that you're working with how they treat their workers etc and having said that you know I do know that Tate doesn't have a great reputation with respect to its staff particularly its retail and service staff who have strike you know been on strike a couple of times and I have you know had to think about that quite carefully and I you know I came to the conclusion that writing this book was a valuable thing to do and this was a way to reach a, a big audience but I have also been keen to ensure that I mention that fact whenever I've given interviews about the book as well I think all of those considerations have to come into your thinking if you are sort of interested in art as so many of us are and I think so many of us as well are very upset and concerned about the shutting down of artistic expression and humanities departments in universities and we're trying to counter that by being as active in those disciplines as we possibly can be but we also do have to be aware of how we're being used and manipulated in that sense as well. I think the conclusions that I've come to in terms of how you how you navigate that is to ensure that what you're doing is contributing to what I was talking about before about this sort of like dismantling of this like naturalization of our kind of free market neoliberal system and that doesn't mean I don't think making work that is often like explicitly political in fact I actually find a lot of like quote unquote like political art really like tawdry and quite grotesque and I think it fails in its function as art I don't think that art is the space or the place to be kind of not necessarily polemical but didactic or explaining kind of political ideas to people you can save that for kind of essays like the ones that I've written but I do think that its main function or its, its best function is in all I can really the only way I can really characterize it is that kind of like teasing apart of this reality that we live in and teasing apart this kind of pernicious idea that the way that things are governed now and the way that we live is in any way natural or any way inevitable to show that actually it's being orchestrated by people it's being orchestrated by people in charge to serve their own ends and to drive further inequality I went on a huge rant there I'm really sorry but, um... <laughs> no you never apologize for a rant not on Navarra FM never um, you said this fascinating thing about art when it strays too far into the realm of the didactic fail in its capacity of art I was wondering what you mean by that I think that there has to be an admission. If you're producing art, there is a degree of sort of ego, individualism and enrichment going on if you're successful, right? And there has to be an acknowledgement of that. And if you are in that line of work and that is what you're doing, then you have to be quite upfront <laughs> about that, that you are, you know, there are several artists, I think, who kind of build themselves as like political artists whose sole aim is to become famous artists, famous rich artists. And there is a huge sort of contradiction there in terms of their aims and ambitions that are very obvious to anyone from the outside. And I also <laughs> think that what it breeds as well is people who want to kind of achieve success in that world will also sometimes ride on popular waves and if that happens to be that there's a kind of swelling left-wing thinking or there's a kind of swelling kind of um, discourse around 
certain forms of equality or whatever, there are people who are opportunists who will use that to support their careers and they are careerists. <laughs> and I think that is very off-putting to a lot of people that exist outside of it. And I think that really valuable art work that we should be celebrating and that I hope kind of is remembered and canonized is that which thinks very deeply about these systems of capital and how they're working and how we sort of open people's eyes to some of these pernicious forces that are kind of shaping the society in which we live. And like I say, I don't think that that's ever done really explicitly. I think it's through kind of coaxing people to see things for themselves and just kind of teasing things apart and exposing edifice and artifice in much of kind of contemporary life. So that's my that's my preference in terms of artistic expression. And I'm being quite vague there because I don't want to sort of name names and create enemies, although I probably will do anyway just by just by saying that. But um, for example, I think there's a lot of work coming out of art schools that's very like anti-consumerist in its mentality, which is fine. But what it tends to breed is contempt for people who are forced to engage with mass consumerism because they aren't wealthy or whatever. So it kind of vilifies the consumer of like fast fashion or the person that aspires to own, you know, luxury goods, as opposed to critiquing a system that generates that desire and that also immiserates people to the point where they can't afford to actually buy you know, things that are ethically made or whatever. It seems quite reactionary and quite condemning and quite hateful, actually, of working class communities, people and the pressures that they're under to just survive. Um, and it very rarely engages on a more structural level with the kind of causes of that and what's happening. So that's my kind of prejudice is that I don't really like a lot of sort of political or quote unquote um, polemical artwork um particularly that i've seen and that is being created by a lot of people at the moment uh, okay whilst wanting to keep this a beef free zone i do have to ask about the ybas the young british artists i mean not so young anymore r.i.p tracy emin people like that who um were you know <laughs> considered very boundary pushing uh rule breaking through the 90s kind of you know, absorbed into the whole cool Britannia vogue etc and looking back at them now particularly after reading your book I do just keep thinking about how we continually mistake cynicism for political content yes I think that's a good <laughs> I think that's a good way of putting it <laughs> I mean they're farcical and they have I think been condemned like the dustbin of history but I don't think they care because they're <laughs> all multi multi-millionaires now and they're all sitting on top of massive fortunes. And I think some people were in it for that from the beginning. I think that obviously Jay Jopling, who is the kind of architect of the whole thing, was. I mean, he's rich. He comes from a very rich family. That's why he was able to have a gallery. Some people, I think, were in it from the beginning. Who knows? I mean, who knows what people's motivations are? I I like to think that Tracy Emin's trajectory is that she was, like, corrupted at some point along the way. I, I can't <laughs> imagine that that was always the ambition or the drive, but um, something went awry. Money, I think. I think money just distorts your, um, your brain in some way. But, um, <laughs> yeah, and also what they did, and what I really loathe, actually, is that they really played up to those like working-class stereotypes, and they sold out the working class in a lot of ways by kind of, you know, presenting as these like bold, brash, like outspoken people, and that's and, and they traded on that as a kind of identity and suggested that that was a, an identity that's inherently working class or something, you know, really like brazen and unapologetic and ballsy and in your face which I think is very harm. It's a very harmful stereotype to be promulgating about any kind of demographic um, or group of people. But they presented themselves as representatives of that class and did so in a very crass way that I think sold a lot of people out and caused a lot of harm. And in the process became inordinately wealthy, which is unforgivable. But it is pure Thatcherite, Blairite politics in action. I mean, they are the they are the dream. They lived the kind of Blairite dream. And that was all the Blairite dream was set up to do was to enable fortuitous individuals to escape <laughs> the class into which, you know, into which they um, had been born in the name of social mobility. And yeah, find them loathsome. <laughs> I love, love the fact that two seconds ago you were being extremely diplomatic and now you're like, nope, 
dustbin of history for them. <laughs> Great. Love it. Um, I'm wondering about, I guess, how we disentangle the art as an exchange commodity, as this thing that can, you know, massively enrich the artist, but also act as this kind of sink of wealth in the in the way that, you know, buying up a block of London flats would be, for instance. You know, how can we sort of disentangle the the value of an the art object as an art object and the value of the art object as something that sort of sits and ca- gathers dust in someone's like personal collection that they have acquired because they are an arms dealer. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, Damien Hurst's wife was married to an arms dealer, I think, before she married, or girlfriend, before she got together with Damien Hurst. But um, I think it, it's very important to you know, bring home to people the fact that these artists, these very wealthy artists, are sitting on top of, like, factories. They've got people. They've got very keen art graduates who are under the illusion that working in their studio, a couple of them might succeed, but the vast majority of them won't go on to have their own careers as artists, who are under the illusion that by working in their studio, they're going to go on themselves to have this artistic career, and they're not. And so they're working there under false pretenses. They're working there without being paid a great deal. In fact, I know a lot of people who've worked in their studios, and they're not paid much at all. And they're producing this work for their boss, who is then siphoning off all of the profits and sitting atop multi, multi-million pound property fortunes. And um, sorry, yeah, well, property in terms of the, the artworks. And then obviously there's a thing that a lot of the YBA did as well, where they were buying up their own works to inflate the price. Um, it was a trick that Damien Hurst did where he would buy up his own artworks at an inflated price and then that would increase the price of all of his works by anonymously bidding on them for loads of money. And then his whole collection would then become more valuable. It does make an interesting contrast with, I guess, the idea of the the artist as this non-alienated labourer. You know, you, you are kind of like directly creating the thing that is then the sink of value and you have some kind of direct ownership over it, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like we sometimes don't talk enough about the artist as like you know a worker who needs to like eat and have shelter and all that kind of thing not just someone who has like this greater calling which sustains them something I always think about when um people talk about Van Gogh's I guess sort of madness for want of a better word his like poor mental health as a sign of his greatness but actually if you look at the conditions in which he lived his life those are the conditions which we know to produce poor mental health for every sector of the economy. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. There was a William Blake exhibition at Tate Britain a couple of years ago, which actually was quite refreshingly honest about this stuff. And it was curated according to his financial standing at any given time and his patrons and his relationship to them which actually made for quite a boring exhibition thematically. It was just like, at this point, he had a bit of money because someone was paying him to work. At this point, he didn't have any money. But it was quite interesting as well, because especially someone like William Blake, who's like mythologized endlessly because he was such a strange and, you know, sort of idiosyncratic person. But it was quite interesting to just have someone like, nope, we're just going to straightforward it. You know, it was a, a straightforwardly kind of like Marxist approach to the curation of that exhibition to just say, well, let's just look at, you know, how he was funded and how that affected his health and how that affected his output and, the, you know, the amount he was able to produce and how prolific he was, et cetera. So that was quite interesting. But, um, yeah, and I think that actually one thing that I really wanted to stress in the book as well is that the artist, perhaps we need two definitions of an artist because there's, an, <laughs> there's the artist as celebrity and then there is the kind of artisan, the person who is producing things. And I think that in conflating those two things, part of like the artist's kind of mythic status in the public imaginary is that we think it's all about their genius. We think it's all about their ability to kind of, you know, have these ideas that no one else is able to enact them and all the rest of it. But actually, I think part of their mythic status comes from their ability to circumnavigate that kind of alienated form of labour that the rest of us are forced into and to appear like people who create their 
their output from start to finish and are completely connected to and almost inextricable from the work that they produce. And I think that on a subconscious level, that's what contributes to the artist's kind of mythic status. But we don't think about it in that way. We think of them as these kind of like geniuses or doyens or gods of some kind. And so it's kind of just looking at that and trying to explain that actually for those that are committed to doing that, it's a life of kind of financial ruin and hardship. And for those that seem to succeed in it, there's actually a whole sort of workforce behind them that are producing that illusion. Uh, that is that is fascinating. I never would have thought of it like that, unpacking the mystique as a function of labour alienation. I, I want to sort of roll back a little bit when we talk about, I guess, sort of for want of a better phrase, perhaps the, the artist of conscience, because I'm fascinated by the way in which you bring depictions of war and depictions of the horrors, particularly of the First and Second World Wars, into this class framework, because often that gets excised from when we historicise how like working class existence has been consecrated in art. We sort of forget actually these moments of, of mass violence when you look at artists like Winifred Knight, Jacob Epstein, Picasso, slightly later on with the Guernica. I'm interested in how these sort of, you know, pre-didactic cries of pain can intrude on the way in which we talk about war. Well, I think it's important to always remember that, like, wars are forged by people in power, normally very rich people, and, and in, like, in some cases, like, hereditary power and wealth but it's working class people that fight them and die and that is huge and sort of often as you say neglected aspect of like the narrative of working class experience in the 21st sorry in the 20th century I'm speaking in Europe here specifically and obviously during the two world wars and why I find the Jacob Epstein sculpture so haunting, and just for anyone who isn't aware, Jacob Epstein has a sculpture called Torso in Metal. It was originally called the Rock Drill, and it's a it was originally a futuristic sculpture of a sort of like cyborg type robot type figure sat atop a like rock drill. And it's a menacing figure, it's intimidating, but it was meant to kind of celebrate or at least sort of recognise and acknowledge the forward movement of like technology and the potential of new developments in automation and machinery. I think it was produced before the First World War. It's staggering that it was produced before the World War, First World War because it looks as though it was created yesterday. It looks hyper-futuristic and, and, and contemporary. And then after the First World War, he became so disillusioned by the kind of technological developments that happened during that time and the destruction that they'd caused that he felt very compromised in having this sculpture and he therefore destroyed it he removed the rock drill that the kind of cyborg type figure is sat atop and it's just now the top of the torso from the waist up and it's looking down and it looks cowed it looks mournful and regretful and sorry so in a way that wasn't didactic that was an artist facing a huge sort of like ethical conundrum with himself and destroying a work that he thought shouldn't exist and shouldn't be out there in the world. And so that to me exists as a very poignant object and it it carries an important message, I think. And Winifred Knight as well, again, wasn't explicitly talking about class necessarily, but you can't escape a class reading of that painting, which is the, uh, I've forgotten the name of it, but <laughs> it's with lots of kind of like uh, hunched over figures it was inspired by an explosion at a TNT plant that she'd witnessed. I think she'd gone down there almost in like a touristic capacity in the way that you can see like blocks of flats being like blown up or whatever. And there's like an advertisement to tell you when it's happening. I think that's what had happened or maybe not, but she'd gone, she'd seen, she'd witnessed this explosion and she was so horrified by it that she then created a series of works in response to it that were about the kind of like the sense of like awe and terror at the prospect of like technological advancement and what was happening in its destructive power. But because it had been painted immediately after World Wars, uh, well, I think World War One, the kind of significance is inescapable. And the people that are shown in those scenes are working class people from working class communities. And so almost indirectly, what end up being like kind of pieces about the horror of certain aspects of technology end up actually being class critiques as well 
that being said, neither of them and neither am I are like a Luddite. I don't believe in like, you know, reversing technological advancement, but obviously ethical development of technology would be preferable. So, um, <laughs> yes, I was interested in those works. And I think that I think that I was keen to include them because I was like, well, they might you might not necessarily approach them thinking of them as kind of like works on class or the class experience. But they are, as I'm trying to argue, pretty much all works can be seen as. I would love to get your thoughts on the use of these great works in the production of a very particular sense of taste. What is good taste? What is bad taste? What is high culture? What is low culture that can sometimes be weaponized against working class people? And on the other hand, it's sort of highly and sort of exclusively cultural interpretations of what it is to be working class. I'm actually writing another book on this subject at the moment, and it is a minefield, <laughs> but it seeks to resist, obviously, sort of like cultural readings of class or, you know, reducing class to questions of like accent, the way that you dress, the way that you style your home, etc., which are all irrelevant. That being said, and as I kind of argue in the class book that I wrote for Tate, class is always a question of material wealth, capital, and your relationship to labour. But those relationships can be somewhat affected by cultural factors. And that, I think, needs to be acknowledged and recognised. And I think that that's the way that we get around this sort of... To be honest, it's frustrating to me that we kind of get caught in these, like, endless debates about, like, you know, is it about that or isn't it? Obviously, it's gotten... You know, it is only about wealth, labour, capital, etc. That is class. However, I think it's fine to say that without being drawn into these kind of like culture wars by the right or whatever, to say that there are cultural factors that dictate your ability to ascend, you know, in a kind of like to mobilize for social mobility. So thinking about that guy on Question Time who was like adamant that he was working class because he was wearing a polo shirt and he worked as a laborer, you know, he worked in, um, I think he was a plumber. Um, but he was earning £80,000 a year. I think I don't think he was working as a plumber anymore, but he had a plumbing business. And asking why people still feel as though kind of from an identity perspective, they are working class. Why, if, why has this been transformed into a kind of identity? So taste and class is a very like fraught area of debate, discussion and consideration. And there are many people who've written on this. Bourdieu, obviously being the main one that comes to mind and I think that there has to be an acknowledgement that good taste is something that's ordained it's something that's um, asserted by people in power and it's something that the rest of us have to be able to kind of understand and navigate in order to kind of seek approval and therefore secure a degree of kind of like social standing or financial standing for ourselves and so I hope that the class book has gone some way to doing that. And the next book that I'm writing, I hope, goes further. But yes, it is tricky. I mean, it is tricky to discuss these things without being drawn into these culture wars. And nobody wants to do that. But by the same token, I think it is a mistake to avoid questions of, of how this stuff plays out, kind of culturally speaking, because I think it's there. I think that's the site of this naturalisation that we're talking about. I think culture is the place where our kind of, Sorry, I'm I'm reluctant to kind of characterise culture as some as like a kind of thing that's separate from politics or separate from lived experience. It is. I mean, it's it's the shared collective ideas that we all kind of tap into and have some part in. But I think it I think it's wrong or it's a mistake to say that we should avoid questions of like cultural consideration altogether for fear of playing into these cultures that are being confected by the right and to focus instead solely on this kind of like material um these material considerations because it has gone beyond that and if we want to kind of explain aspects of inequality to people there has to be a an attempt to dismantle a lot of this kind of like stagecraft i suppose of late capitalism and neoliberalism yes that's my that's my my view on it yeah, the stagecraft of late capitalism is an amazing way of putting it. And I think on that incredibly revelatory note is uh, where we will have to end it. I, even though we could, for such a short, concise book of, you know, 
it's about 50 pages and about a third of that is pictures so much to delve into uh please get out and buy the book if you can highly recommend it and thank you so much natalie for joining us it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.